everyone, welcome to the Cornea Corner, a podcast where two new optometrists demystify anterior segment diseases and specialty contact lenses while exploring what's new in the corneal world. Hiya, we're back with a long-awaited second part of the makeup series. This is Priscilla Chang, and here's my cornea-loving co-host, Shalon Rashid. What's makeup-in? <laughs> I've actually been wearing less makeup for the past week or so. Good for you. <laughs> just because of our episode, <laughs> and that's a big step for me. Have you had any interesting cases since the last time we talked? Mm-hmm. It's been an ocular disease-heavy week for me. For sure, I agree. My interesting case was a patient who had PPMD. Do you happen to remember the classic appearance of it or the classic findings? It was like the the train tracks in the back and the endothelial layer. Yeah, exactly. So that's typically what we think of with that corneal dystrophy. What's interesting about my case is that uh, this patient had the typical train track lesion in one eye, but the other eye had a different presentation of it. Mm-hmm. And I guess I didn't really know that there were three different types of presentations. Oh, really? Yeah. One of the presentations is band-like, so that's the typical train track lesion that we think about, where it's like two separate bands, and they're kind of serrated, Mm -hmm. and they're parallel to each other. I always thought they looked like worms. (laughs) (laughs) I can't unsee it now. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. And the second type is vesicular. So with that one, you've got multiple translucent cystic-like lesions. Sometimes these cysts are isolated, they're on their own, or they can present with any of the other two types that I'm going to mention. Does it distinctly look different from Guttata? Yes, very, very different. With PPMD, you can see a distinct border, and so it literally looks like a bubble or a cyst. With Guttata, it looks almost like missing puzzle pieces, Mm -hmm. not necessarily like a vesicle or cyst. And sometimes they're clustered around. Cool. Because Guttata would be more of that orange peel texture to it. So you would get like an area of it. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So the third and last presentation is diffuse opacities. It's the least common type, fortunately, because it's the most visually impacting. Mm -hmm. Basically, in this subtype, there's diffuse opacities in Decimase membrane, and it creates a hazy, diffuse appearance. Mm -hmm. Each of these three subtypes can have a variability of symptoms. They can either be asymptomatic, like my patient was, but if they do have symptoms, uh, most of the time it's going to be glare. If the patient has the third type, then they'll also probably experience blur, or they might describe it as hazy or foggy vision. And this is because there's varying levels of endothelial degradation and damage, and then that results in corneal opacification. So are you going to share photos of this case with us on Instagram? Oh my gosh, yes! Of course I had to take pictures, especially with her having two different types. One of her eyes had the vesicular form and the other one had the train track. I can't wait to share it with everyone because that vesicular form was very, very hard to take a picture of. I mean, I couldn't even spot it initially until I magged up all the way. I also have a retroillumination picture of that train track lesion that was taken by the practitioner the year before. Yes, (laughs) I look forward to them. (laughs) One thing to keep in mind with PPMD that I had forgotten about is the increased risk of glaucoma. So with PPMD, the endothelium is basically creating abnormal decimase membrane that ends up being thicker than normal. And so the endothelium is acting epithelial-like. What that means is, morphologically, it's very similar to 
epithelial cells. So they have microvilli, they have uh, desmosomes, and they're also keratinized. Another feature that epithelial cells have is migration. They're able to migrate. And so these abnormal endothelial cells also have the ability to migrate. And unfortunately, one of those places where they can go to is into the angle. And once they're in the angle or in the trabecular meshwork, they can increase IOP and cause secondary glaucoma. They can also cause posterior synechiae. So it's really essential to monitor the IOP on these patients. It's also a great opportunity to sharpen up your agonia skills. <laughs> I know most of us don't really want to do that. I don't know what's so intimidating about gonio, but it's a great excuse, I guess, to perform it on these patients. Right. How I remembered it in optometry school was uh, the train track lesions, and it was like a train wreck because it was like driving straight into the angle. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I do remember the skin kind of creeping in, or the I guess the cells um, creeping in and causing IOP problems. So those uh, little <laughs> mnemonics that stick with you. That's such a good analogy. <laughs> what about you? Have you had any interesting patients? Um, yeah, this week I just saw a patient who had a very suspicious lesion that's been slowly growing. She actually came in for a comprehensive eye exam. It was a 52-year-old um, Caucasian female. So this was an incidental finding, I guess. But she had a lesion that was basal cell carcinoma on her eyelid. And it is... Uh, it was pretty big. It was about five millimeters in size. It was like five by seven. So it was actually like slightly oval in shape, but it had these pearly margins and a central looking crater. And my patient even had like a small little ulcer in there. And as the more I questioned her about it, she was like, yeah, it does bleed. And then it like crosses over and then it, I just like pick it off. Mm -hmm. And then like, we're talking and I'm like, oh my gosh, this, this sounds really bad. It's like what you dread. <laughs> Yeah, right. And I was like, you know, for something that's like bleeding and that's just, you know, coming and going, but the, the bump just keeps getting bigger. Like you should have been coming in or bringing this up to a doctor sooner. And exactly. you know, there are obviously barriers to care, such as insurance coverage that prevented her from coming in sooner. But I'm glad she did. I was able to kind of emphasize the need to get that surgically removed mm -hmm. and connecting her with primary care. So we're getting the whole medical team back in to play for her. And basal cell carcinoma is actually one of the most common types of eyelid cancer. So I do highly encourage our listeners to bring up the importance of sunscreen on the eyelids and sunglasses and things like that, because oftentimes that conversation is missed as older patients who are in their 60s. They're like, no one ever told me that you can get eyelid cancer. And it's like, well, you, it's skin, right? And you can get skin cancer. So yeah, so definitely an uh, important learning point. Um, the other thing that was interesting was that I was, I've previously seen patients who are on the other end. So after they've had the suspicious lesion removed, and I've seen how they just like lose a chunk of their eyelid. So it has to be reconstructed. And so I was able to kind of prepare for the expectations on the biopsy experience. And she's given how large her lesion is, she's probably going to need Mohs surgery done, which I was talking to one of my colleagues and she's like, what's that? And so I figured I can talk about that a little bit. Do you know what Mohs surgery is? Yeah, I do. From what I can recall, I think they remove uh, tissue and then examine it histologically under a microscope. 
and they look at the edges of the tissue and they try to see if there's any, I guess, cancerous cells still at the border. And if there is, they can, they go back in there and continue removing tissue. But if there isn't, um, that's how they know they've reached the edge or something like that. Right. Is that about right? Mm-hmm. So they keep going until they cut out all of the tumor. And so they try to preserve as much of the healthy tissue as possible because otherwise you don't really know how far the borders have reached. And so I remember for my residency, the oculoplastic specialist told me that in their state, you have to be like, if you're an ophthalmologist, you couldn't do it, but you had to be trained as an oculoplastic surgeon or the plastics surgeon would do it. And then they would send the case over to get it reconstructed. So it was like, you know, it was really interesting to kind of see it on the other end because the patients always, I mean, they're not aware of maybe how large the lesion was or how much it has started to affect. And if it started you know, growing larger and in, um, invading the ocular structures. And you have to worry about reconstructing not just the eyelids, the lacrimal system, and whether or not they can still close their eyelid and things like wow. that. So I never would have thought it would be that extensive. Right, right. So that was the interesting case of the week. Oh, wow. This is your first cancer diagnosing case. Yes, my first, my first one. <laughs> Did she have any risk factors? Uh, she did. She's like, I, I don't use sunscreen, don't use sunglasses. And especially when she was younger, she was always outside. The more we talked about it, she revealed that her mother also had skin cancer. So she has that, I guess, family history. And she also is this everyday smoker. So that doesn't help with oxidative damage that's occurring in the body. That makes sense. Okay. For her, what's interesting is it was on her, it was not directly on her lid. It was kind of like proximal to the glabellar region and it wasn't exactly on the eyelid. And I remember learning about it more likely to be kind of on the lower eyelid. So yeah, gotta be prepared for the atypical presentations too. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Interesting indeed. And speaking of interesting, I know last episode we talked about tubing mascaras. Have you had a chance to try it? Because I know we, we, you know, after I told you about it, you're like, I got to go try this. <laughs> what has been your experience with that? <laughs> yeah, I definitely went and got it. And everything that we talked about was true. So oh, it doesn't really? Lead. I was so impressed with it, actually. I mean, I'm talking about like gym days <laughs> or like 10, 12 hour days. Oh, actually, I remember taking pictures. I took pictures before the gym and I even took pictures of my eyes after the gym just to see how much fallout or pigment there would be after my workout. And I didn't see any. No panda eyes? <laughs> <laughs> no, no panda or raccoon eyes. <laughs> now, I will say I've used it a couple more times on like really long days in clinic. And I noticed sometimes there's like a little bit of fallout, but not necessarily pigment, but just like a strand of the mascara on my lower adnexa. But I was still overall very happy with it. It was very easy to remove. I even took a picture of the tubules that kind of just gl glided off on my cotton pad. And I was like, if we're going to do a second part and talk about this, now I already bought it. I might as well document everything. Oh yeah, and then the one thing I did notice with Tubi Mascara was my lashes weren't as, I guess, thick and, and full compared to pigment-based mascaras. So that was just something I noticed. Maybe I was applying it wrong. I don't know. <laughs> Are you able to build on top of those polymers? I tried. Maybe. I mean, maybe someone else can do a better job with it. Did you have the chance to try any? I see. I see. Well, that's good to know. We have personal experience here. I did try it. I don't usually wear mascara, though, so it, I can't. 
attest to, you know, the volumizing effects of it. But I was impressed with how easily it, it was to remove it. So I've been actually telling my patients who I see when they see a lot of the clumping mascara, I'm like, maybe you should consider the tubing mascara. And thankfully, I can point them to the product that I tried. So I can at least be like, I've tried this one. And this one is the one that I had a really good experience with. And a lot of them are like, I've never heard of this because they always stick to one mascara that you, you know, you really like for the volumizing or the lengthening. And then that's the only one you buy for the rest of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So we're all very committed to our products or we're all very loyal. (laughs) Well, I'm glad we both tried it. I've actually been recommending it to several of my patients. Oh, great, great. I know the other topic we talked about was lash lift. Oh, yeah. During this time, actually, one of my friends mentioned she had a kit that she purchased online. So I had that done as well. She did it for me at my place. The process was like 30 or 40 minutes. Man, some of the chemicals burned, the glue or or whatever else was used. It burned quite a bit. And all I could think about was, (laughs) thank God I got LASIK and I don't, I'm not wearing any contact lenses. (laughs) (laughs) And that would have made me so nervous. I mean, the burning and stinging sensation went away after a few seconds, but I would say it happened multiple times. It did look lifted and it was definitely a more natural look and I didn't feel the need to really put mascara on for the next few days afterwards. But I did notice the effect just wasn't as long as I expected. I don't know what I was expecting, but it was more than three or four days. (laughs) And of course, I'm sure the outcome would have been better if maybe a professional was doing it. Mm -hmm. All that pain for three days of lash lifting, I would be unimpressed too. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I would have been even more unimpressed if I had to sit there and pay. I think it's like, it's pretty expensive. I want to say it's like $70 or so to get them lifted like that and for it to only last a few days. Not cheap. No, not at all. But yeah, let's go into brows next. That's We're going to proceed with our <laughs> our content. Yeah, yeah. So we talked about all these different types of makeups, but how are we going to remove them all? <laughs> mm-hmm. So aside from just using water and a cotton pad or tissue for the tubing mascara, <laughs> there are some other things that we can talk about. So one thing that I really like to recommend to patients is lid wipes. There are three big ones on the market, OcuSoft, Sustain, and Optase. All three of them are pre-moistened lid wipes that are meant to be used as part of like a daily lid hygiene. When it comes to OcuSoft, I didn't realize how diverse they are until I looked into this for the episode. They have several eyelid cleanser products available, Mm -hmm. and they're really known for their pre-moistened towelettes and lid scrubs with foaming cleansers and pads as well to remove debris and makeup off the eyelids. You can either do the pre-moistened wipes or they can also choose to do the scrub kits with a foaming cleanser. Mm -hmm. So patients who use heavy makeup or like waterproof makeup, they may need the OcuSoft Plus. That one just has extra strength to remove even more protein and debris off lashes and around the eyes themselves. So other unique products that OcuSoft have that I thought was interesting was they have Demodex pre-moistened wipes. We talked about Demodex earlier, and this sounds like a really, really good option. It's so much better than having to worry about how much tea tree oil do we dilute. (laughs) Oh, please don't do this. (laughs) Please don't go look for tea tree oil. It's too strong. (laughs) Exactly. This would be a great alternative for patients who wear makeup and they have Demodex. It contains a moisturizer and preservative blend that offers antibacterial properties. 
aside from the Demodex pre-moistened wipe, they also have allergy lid wipes. Oh my and gosh, so, yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're so great for women who wear makeup and have ocular allergies because the lashes are yeah. a great place for allergens to hang out. So for those patients, being able to mention a product is really, really helpful because I feel like Ocusoft has such a mm-hmm. large portfolio, but a lot of people who are not in eye care don't know what that is. So we got we to gotta promote some of this stuff. Exactly. And so whenever patients come in, maybe during spring or fall and they have allergies and they wear makeup, this would be a really good lid wipe. Mm-hmm. Usually these come in individual packages, so they're great for traveling or like taking them to work or whatever it may be. They even have a baby Ocusol version that's more gentle for the skin. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, the packaging is so cute for that. <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> So OcuSoft also has a hypochlor solution, and it also comes in a gel formulation. If you don't remember, hypochlorous acid is typically used as a disinfectant in many different fields. It's in a much lower concentration when we use it for our eyes, but pure hypochloric acid is a natural antimicrobial agent, and it's actually non-toxic to the ocular surface. I usually recommend these to patients who have maybe blepharitis, or they have recurrent hordeola, or even MGD. Right, right. Well, I've been recommending Avanova. There's so many hypochlorous solutions on the mm-hmm. market right now, I feel like. So we could probably deep dive into that in, <laughs> in another episode. I think all of these eye-specific lid wipes are very, very helpful, good recommendations. I guess we didn't really go into Optase, but that one is part of the three-step regimen we talked about in our 2020 in-review. So go back and listen to that if you don't know what that is. But, you know, I really love the sustained lid wipes. Mm. It's so soft and foamy. So, yes, I love Akisoft products, but the sustained ones are just – how do I describe it? It's like – it's just soft. <laughs> Akisoft can sometimes be a little harsh on my skin, at least when I'm trying to use it to remove makeup products and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. the sustained one, as you use it, it foams up. And so it's just so comfortable. <laughs> it is. You described it perfectly, Priscilla. You said soft. I love using sustained lid wipes. I take them for any kind of travel that I do. Not that I'm doing much lately, <laughs> but they're great for removing eyeshadow and it does such a good job. And yeah, I love seeing the, you're like, oh, that turned dark. You know, it came off your face. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But you know, other things about makeup remover, our patients are using a ton of different products, right? They're going to Sephora. They're trying to figure out what's most popular. But with makeup removers, there's a ton of different categories, right? You have the oil-free formulations, the alcohol-free formulations. You have the oil-based micro-emulsion. And you have the kind that's going to be micelle, Mm -hmm. where it's supposed to wrap around all of the makeup products, wipe it off, and things like that. And some of them have like hyaluronic acid in it to lubricate the skin while they're at it. But there's one study where they actually found that all of those different makeup removers, despite what they may be marketed to do and things like that, will cause tear film evaporation. And it's because it leaches into the eye because you're basically removing makeup while your eyes are closed, right? So what's happening is this makeup remover product is traveling into your tears. It's kind of changing things up. It's very interesting because in the study, they found that the oil-based microemulsions were the ones associated with the greatest reduction in lipid layer quality and tear film stability. So it makes you wonder if these makeup removers that have oils in it will go into your tear film and just kind of wreck havoc because it throws the balance off, you know, the, the perfect aqueous oil mucus balance. And I've actually seen this in some of my patients who use coconut oil as their makeup remover because there's just so much oil on their eyes. There's one patient where 
I mean, she was blinking and I saw droplets of coconut oil. Oh, in it. wow. And I felt bad because I was like, I didn't really want to go and ask her to take a video or a photo, but she was complaining about just so many things that day. And I was like, yeah, I'm not going to add to this. But when we think about applying oils around the eyes, it's just, you can't imagine what it can do to the, the tear film. And so, you know, those lid wipes that you recommend really is my go-to when patients ask. And, you know, one of the other products we didn't mention is We Love Eyes, which is a product line that's created by an optometrist. So I like supporting them because they're from Oakland. So woot woot, 510. Um, but anyways, that's the, the products are a little bit more expensive, but also safe for the eyes. Yeah. And patients that use all these makeup products, their eyes get so red and irritated. They tend to start wanting to cover that up with drops. Oh my God. Yes. The irritation and the redness. Yes. That is a great segue to our next category of makeup, which are contactable whiteners, which would you consider that makeup? I consider it cosmetic enhancement. Because I have patients who are on Lumify every single day. It's part of their makeup regimen. They're like, I do everything and then I put the Lumify in. But, you know, one of the things that we got to remind our patients is Lumify has BAK in it. There's preservatives in it. So some people can get some sensitivities, itching, redness, burning. And I actually had one patient today where she we couldn't pinpoint why she had this allergic response. She was like, I don't have allergies. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I was like, what have you been doing? Like, what's changed? And then she actually brought up Lumify. And mm. I was like, you know, I don't. I think an allergy to Lumify is very rare because it's such a low concentration, but it's highly possible. So I told her, I was like, you know what I want you to do is I want you to stop Lumify and come back and we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, that would be surprising. So that is interesting. And anyways, my patients know that I always ask them if they use Visine. And <laughs> Visine is, I mean, it's cheap. <laughs> It really is. It's like three or four dollars. <laughs> but you know what? Asking if patients use clear eyes or visine needs to be in the history. As they're marking off their ocular history and stuff, that question needs to be included. <laughs> I mean, someone someone has it in their back. <laughs> but with my patients, I do tell them visine is associated with rebound redness. And what does it mean? And basically, visine, active ingredient in it is tetrahydrazoline, HCL 0.05%. And it is going to physically shrink the retinal blood vessels. So as you can imagine, your eye still needs blood. So eventually, you're getting rid of the redness of the eyes, but eventually, the, as a medication will wear off, or your eye is like screaming for oxygen, then the blood vessels itself will open up again. And then you basically get a problem that was worse than the initial problem that you had to begin with. <laughs> so over prolonged periods of time of continuous visine use, what can happen is that rebound redness is going to be the new default. So wow. very terrifying. And it's true. You can have visine for a condition that you're trying to treat. So I tell my patients, if they are using it more often than for certain events, I'm always like, you know, what's going on? Because there's obviously something that they're trying to cover up. And mm -hmm. Visine is just one of those things where if you make that mistake of doing it all the time, eventually you might even get dilated pupils if you use it too often and sensitivity to light and blurry vision. And that's scary for patients, but you never want to get there. <laughs> no, definitely not. And those are some of the adverse effects of Visine that we don't think about if they use it so commonly. The dilated pupil, the blurry vision, sensitivity to light, glare, things like that. Yeah, I remember at ICO and as a student, there was one patient who used Visine so much because she was wearing the lash extensions, had dry eyes that was causing her eyes to be red, but she wasn't symptomatic. And she came in with dilated pupils and was like, oh my gosh, why are her pupils responding to light? Like, what's happening? And then... It was like, is she on drugs? Like, what am I looking at? And eventually we figured out it was the visine that was happening. <laughs> so, wow. That case, permanently imprinted in my mind. But anyways, other 
cosmeceutical conjunctival whiteners would be clear eyes, like you mentioned, or the Roto cooling eye drops. Both of these products have the same amount of napazoline hydrochloride, 0.012%, except the Roto eye drops are cooling because they also add menthol in there. So it's like, what? Is that like putting toothpaste in your eyes? <laughs> but anyways, the same thing can happen like with Visine. So honestly, I ask my patients, how often are you using this? Because if it's for occasion... It's okay, but if you're going to be using it a lot, we really want to be wary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. So those two, it sounds like they're still using an alpha adrenergic agonist, but it's just a lower concentration compared to Visine. Mm-hmm. That's right. Whenever I recommend using Lumify, I tell them it's not really meant for every day. It's for just, like you said, an occasion or something like that. Like photos, like portraits or whatever you want to do. And you want doll eyes, basically. Yeah, Lumify is actually approved for QID use, but really we should not be promoting that in our patients. No, mm -mm. I tell them once a day. Even on the packaging, Lumify says it can work up to eight hours, so why would anyone use it QID? Yeah, that's if they don't sleep. They rage. Rage through the night. It's (laughs) all-nighter. Oh, you're right. (laughs) Eight times four. That's right. No, that's 32. (laughs) That's right. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) After optics, too, we gave up with math, clearly. <laughs> yeah. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, the last thing I think on our list was Botox. So we're not going to go into the deets about that, but as you can imagine, some people will get blinking abnormalities if the Botox was not properly distributed around the eyes or done by not someone who's supposed to be doing it. So, yeah. So if you have a patient that looks like they're not really moving their forehead and they have some blinking issues, like... <laughs> You can bring it up. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because if they're not blinking enough, that can lead to dry eyes or lag ophthalmos. You know, while they're sleeping, if they happen to be utilizing forehead muscles for blinks or closing their eyes. Right. And the oculoplastic specialist I used to work for, if she did Botox with people, like she wouldn't actually push as many units as she would think. She'd try to go slow and then have patients come back Mm -hmm. see where things have settled. And if there's a blinking abnormality, she knows like, okay. Even if we try to creep up on the amount, we know to bring it back down because we don't want it to cause other problems. Well, that's a good approach. I like that. Mm-hmm. We talked about a lot of different types of beauty products, but if you can't remember everything we said <laughs> and you need some help, apps are always a good way to kind of help you out when it comes to figuring out what kind of ingredients are in certain products. Mm-hmm. So you can download these. The first one I want to go through is Cosmetics. It's actually a European app that lets you scan the bar of a product. And when you do, you can look at the ingredients for each one. You can click on the individual ingredient and learn more about it. You can also learn what the function of it is. If there's a particular product that's not in the database, you can take pictures of it and upload it on the app. And that will get sent off to someone on the team that will contact you back to provide feedback on that product that you couldn't find on there. Oh, interesting. And it also offers a better for you alternative option that is considered better for you or healthier if there's something that maybe you don't like. Mm -hmm. So that was also unique to that app. The second app that I looked into was Detox Me. Detox Me helps reduce the consumer's exposure to like potentially harmful chemicals and not just all around products, but also in foods and drinks too, which I found interesting. And they also have recommendations for safer alternatives, and it breaks down the label terminology for you as well on there. Mm, that's fascinating. Those are some good good things. 
Another one that I use as a resource actually for this episode is the Environmental Working Group's Skin Deep database. Mm-hmm. So Skin Deep is actually a brand itself, and their scientists created a database where they looked at and created profiles for different cosmetics, personal care products, and their staff scientists went down on these products. Like they just they compare them and they break down the ingredient list and they compare it to sixty toxicity and regulatory databases. Like it's very impressive if you look at this list and it seems like the nonprofit arm of them is not profiting off of this. You get a lot of really good information. And for each product, what they do is they assign hazard scores and they attribute it to different risk factors such as allergies, neurotoxicity, wow. ingredients known to cause cancer, bioaccumulation, things like that. And it's it has a lot of good stuff. So for anybody out there who's curious, they have a really, really great blog that breaks down ingredients. So yes, shout out to them. Yeah, that sounds very helpful. They also have an app, I believe. They do. I, that I haven't explored. I really just only looked at their website. Another good one is that also will attribute scores to different products. It's called Think Dirty. And with this app, you can actually scan product barcodes as well. And it also tells you how to shop cleaner options. And so this one's kind of fun. I actually learned about this one in optometry school. So I've been able to use this app. And it has a lot of drugstore brands. So I would say it's really helpful if you have a patient that loves shopping at Target, Walgreens, CVS. You know, your typical kind of patient. But if... I feel like when I... Typical millennial. Typical millennial. That's right. (laughs) But a lot of like the more brand name stuff, I haven't been able to see it on the app. So I feel like that one's not updated as quickly. That's just my two cents on that because I've tried it. But lastly, we already have this resource on our website. But the Tyler's Quarterly, they do produce a contact lens compatible makeup page where... In their publication, they list all the different drugstore brands that are compatible with contact lenses. So, of course, the the Urban Decay one that you tried was not on that list. (laughs) No, it was not. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) So since we recorded this episode, we actually found out that Tyler's Quarterly is being discontinued. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) This is like a contact lens specialist's worst nightmare. (laughs) So it's really, really sad. I didn't realize it was just a group of friends coming together and working on these publications. Did you know that? No, I had no idea. It was such a sweet way to end, I guess, this era. It's about time. (laughs) And he wrote a really thoughtful closing statement, in my opinion. I mean, he said he was in his 60s and was just like, it's about that time. (laughs) I've done my duty. It is. I was looking on Odie's on Facebook, and a lot of people have now transitioned to using iDoc.com as well as odspecs.com. So I guess if we're looking for a good alternative, those are two two good ones. If you haven't already used them, (laughs) those are treasure boxes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's always older editions of Tyler's, I guess, that we can refer back to. But I mean, iDoc is a great alternative. I always use that now. Just so we don't have to end on a gloomy note, our next episode is going to be very interesting. It's about myopia control. I know it's another really hot topic in the, not only in the contact lens world, but also just in the optometry world in general. So be on the lookout for that episode. But until then, stay makeup and... Thank you for listening to the Cornea Corner Podcast. Visit our website, thecorneacorner.com, and our Instagram page, at thecorneacorner, for additional resources, including photos of any of the cases that were discussed.